you will, please turn in your New Testament Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. There's a familiar phrase that has um, it's been used as the title of at least ten novels and three movies. Uh, it's called The Kiss of Death. Of course, none of these movies are designed to be family night. <laughs> but it's a phrase that's often used, and I wonder if you know the origins of the phrase, the kiss of death. Well, the origin is here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And I asked Joe if he would read from Matthew 26, beginning at verse 46 to verse 56. As we break it down, you see the loyalty that these disciples wanted to display to Jesus Christ. Certainly, we appreciate loyalty, don't we? Sometimes we take loyalty for granted. We only realize how important it is when somebody is disloyal to us. Certainly, these men, the 11 disciples plus Jesus Christ here at the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, these men were determined to be loyal to Jesus Christ. Now, just for your information, of course, this is at the very end of the uh, earthly life of Jesus Christ. This is right after the Last Supper. Jesus Christ takes his 11 disciples up to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane was on the eastern side of Jerusalem, on top of the Mount of Olives, which was about 400 feet from uh, the city itself. You had a cross the Kidron Valley, and then climb a hill about 400 feet. And at the top there was this garden. 
Now, at this point, Christ has already given the disciples a warning. He has told them uh, that he is going to be arrested and that he is going to be killed. They know this already. Okay. And you'll recall from last week that Christ also told them that after he is killed, after he dies, he will meet them in Galilee. And they didn't quite understand, but he had told them that already. Now, what I find very strange, and yet it's very common, is that there's an urgency here that the disciples do not realize. In fact, I think it's a very common episode in our lives. We see an urgency around us, and yet we don't necessarily realize how urgent the situation is until it's too late. Once it's too late, we say, oh, I should have seen it coming. Notice that Christ, as it was just read to us, takes them up to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus Christ is praying. If you read before what was just read, Jesus Christ spent a considerable amount of time praying before, before the cross. And he invites, he orders the disciples to pray with him. But what do they do? Do you remember? They fell asleep. They fell asleep. And they were not just asleep, they were sound asleep. Why? Because they lacked a sense of urgency. There was no real sense of concern or worry. There was no sense of angst about what was going to happen. Even though Jesus Christ had just told them what was going to happen, it doesn't seem to connect. They knew it, but they did not realize the danger. They could not see how bad things were already, and now they were going to get worse. Isn't that odd how people are, how we are? There's an urgency, but we don't see it. Often until it's too late. They did not see how much in need they were of God's help. And so what did they do? They fell asleep when they should have been praying. They were aware, however, that there was a threat. They were so much aware that at least two of them were carrying swords. We see, not here in what was read to us, but in the Gospel of John chapter 18, that it was Peter who pulls out the sword and swings it at the head of Malchus. And later in Luke 22, we see that there was at least one other disciple that had a sword with them as well. Maybe all 11 of them did. Yet, even though they were carrying a sword because they were expecting trouble, yet they did not see the urgency. They knew it was bad, but not that bad. If you take a look at verse 45, Jesus Christ wakes them up and he says, Sleep and take your rest later on. In other words, get up, wake up. See the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, obviously, Jesus must have uh, seen the gang of, uh, of, uh, of people who are going to arrest him coming uh, uh, into the Kidron Valley and making their way up the Mount of Olives, the torches and lanterns in hand, swords, and weapons ready to arrest Jesus Christ. And so he tells the disciples, wake up, the hour has come. In other words, it has all come to this point. It's here. Uh, the reason for my coming into this world is now going to be fulfilled. So wake up, guys. 
But Christ is also telling them this. It was now too late to pray. You missed out on your opportunity to plead to God. You missed out on your opportunity to pray. It's no longer an opportunity. It's no longer time to pray. You should have prayed. You would have gotten strength from God for this hour had you prayed. Instead, you figured you'd get some strength by sleeping it out. Notice the contrast between what the disciples do and what Jesus Christ does. Now remember, they only want to be loyal. They really do. They even brought a sword with them. These were fishermen carrying swords. Notice the contrast. The disciples slept. And because they slept, they were unable to endure what was about to happen. And so when you get down to the bottom, to verse 56, what happens? When Jesus Christ is being arrested, they all run. They run for their lives. They run because they're afraid. They were unable to face the reality that was in front of them. Why? Because they didn't pray. They slept. Oh, sleep is good. You need sleep. But you also need prayer. There's a time to sleep, a time to pray. They did not know what to do when Jesus Christ was arrested. Why? They didn't pray. They reacted very humanly. Why? They didn't pray. You're catching on. (laughs) They were very much afraid. Why? Because they weren't praying. You see, their praying was not, oh God, stop Jesus from being arrested. Their prayer needed to be, just as Christ's prayer was, God, give me strength, show me what to do, show me how. Because this had to happen, right? It had to happen. But because they slept instead of praying, they really failed. They did everything they weren't supposed to do. Meanwhile, look at Jesus Christ. He spent hours in prayer. And when the time came for him to be arrested and taken to the cross, he faced that reality head on. He was determined to do what was right. He even knew what was right. Why? Because he prayed. He had the strength to do what was right. Why? Because he prayed. He had God the Father's sustaining strength in him because he prayed. Because he spent time in prayer. Christ was ready and the disciples were not. Because he prayed and they did not. We downplay prayer, don't we? Too often we do. There's always something more important to do than pray. Pray seems so ineffective. And yet, here we see a great example of the potency of prayer. When we pray, God sustains us. He sustained Christ. God the Father sustained God the Son, Jesus Christ, through prayer. Whereas the others, the other 11, they did not pray, and they failed at what they needed to do. So here we see how important prayer is in our own life. If it was important in the life of Christ, how much more important is it in the life of the Christian, our lives? Jesus Christ knew success in his ministry. And he knew success required time in prayer. It's that simple. 
And why am I telling you this? Well, because it's the same as true of us, right? If we want to see success in our lives, if we want to be loyal to Christ, we need to pray. How often? Quite often. Quite often. And yet, I must admit, it's one of the most difficult things to do. To find time to pray. Here's the way I think. You know, Lord, I know what I need to do, so let me do it, and if I have any trouble, I'll come back and ask you. Right? I'll get back to you if I need your help. I don't think I'm alone. Yet it is prayer, not so that I know what to do, but that God will help me to do it properly, so that God will sustain and direct me, so that I do it in a way that is loyal to God. Pray. Christ knew that if he was going to endure what was about to happen in the next 24 hours, it would have to be through the sustaining, empowering work of God given to him through prayer. Now, Jesus Christ here models for us what needs to be done by every Christian, not just the 11 disciples. Again, 11 because Judas Iscariot is out of the picture. He's out of life. He's taken his own life. And now there's just 11 This needs to be the norm for us, not Judas Iscariot. The praying. The praying needs to be our norm. Uh, We learn from him. Uh, This is where we get sustenance from, when we spend time in communion with God in prayer. And, And it doesn't matter whether you do it in the morning, in the middle of the day, or in the evening. Pray. Now, it makes good sense to me to start the day off with prayer. But whenever it is that you pray... Make sure that you pray. Spend time communing with God in prayer. Not so that you will get your own way, but so that you will be loyal to Christ. So that you will be sustained by Christ. You know how often it is that we're tempted to do something that would be disloyal. Lord, I pray so that I would be loyal. That's what these disciples wanted to be. Just like us, we want to be loyal. But they neglected the thing that would make them loyal, prayer. And as a result, they were disloyal. If we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will help us. We come to the Lord God in prayer, which requires humility. And I assure you, he will come to our aid. When fear begins to set in, when tiredness begins to set in, when depression begins to overcome your world, listen, Run to the Lord in prayer. How often? Until he answers your prayer. Run to the Lord in prayer. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may lift you up. We run to the Lord how? (laughs) Through prayer. Through prayer. Well, take a look at the urgency that, uh, that they faced and, and, and the urgency that we face. And, and why don't we react properly? Why don't we do what ought to be done? Uh, the urgency of the hour. I think we are living in desperate days. I think most of us would agree. Um, in my opinion, there have been more desperate days in history. Um, consider World War II. Uh, especially if you were in Europe, especially if you were fighting in World War II. Those were desperate days, and maybe even more desperate, World War I. 
which was just a hundred years ago, a little more. If you lived in Cambodia in 1968, those were desperate days. If you lived back in the 1300s during the Black Plague for seven years, those were desperate days as people in your household were just dying and nobody knew that it was because of fleas and mice. Not going back too far, if you lived in America during the Depression, and some of you were there, those were desperate days. The sexual revolution and the civil unrest of the 1960s, and many of us were there, those were desperate days, and I would venture to say even more desperate than today. However, in our culture today, because we have so much information readily available to us, all this comes at us at once. With round-the-clock news, a click of a button, and we get any news we want, we are so overwhelmed with this information, the situation becomes even more desperate. It's hard for us to know what to do with all this inundation of bad news. And so there is a disheartening, there is a sense of great disparity within not only the culture itself, but especially within the Church of Jesus Christ. And many Americans are saying, this is no longer the America I grew up in. And despair sets in. And Christians say, this is no longer the Christian nation I once knew. And fear sets in. There's truth there. Consider, my friends, the urgency of the, of the hour. When, um, when we have gotten rid of faith, we have gotten rid of family, and we have gotten rid of fatherhood. And we wonder why 18-year-old boys buy guns and shoot up in crowds. You've gotten rid of three essentials in the life of an individual, in the life of a society, faith, family, and fatherhood. You get rid of those and you're going to have despair. And this is what we've done, willingly, with the vote, or the lack of voting. What did you think was going to happen? But instead of all this information moving us into action, you know what I think happens? We are so overwhelmed by the, the urgency that we are immobilized. We don't know what to do. We throw our arms up in the air and say, well, who am I to do anything? This is just too much for me to react or to do anything about it. And Christians go one step worse. We cross our arms and we say, yeah, it's pretty bad. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back then everything's going to be fine. And we forget that we are actually to be stewards of God's world. We are to be taking care of this world. And that involves politics. That involves society. And certainly it involves family. That's our job. We are not to cross our arms and say, well, by and by, everything's going to be fine. That's true. But we're not supposed to wait. We're supposed to be doing something about it now as citizens of this world in which God has entrusted into our care. So what keeps us from having a sense of urgency? I do think that we're overwhelmed by information and we don't know what to do. But you know what I think as well? The Bible doesn't say this, but I think it's implied in the text that we're looking at this morning in Matthew 26. 
Notice here that the disciples depended on Jesus Christ to change the situation. And if Jesus Christ is going to change the situation, why can't I go to sleep? He's a big boy. Jesus Christ, well, you know, if he is um, able to calm the storms, if he is able to heal the sick, if he's able to walk on water, what does he need me for? If he's able to take a few pieces of bread, a few pieces of fish, and feed thousands of people, what does he need me for? I could go to sleep. Why should I pray? You know what the disciples do here? They confuse complacency with faith. I don't think they're alone. I think we do likewise. We confuse complacency with faith. This is complacency. Complacency says that um, I'm satisfied with my situation. It's not the best, but I'm satisfied. And because I don't see the pending danger, I don't do anything about it. You see, complacency immobilizes you. Because you don't see the actual threat that's coming. The depth of the threat that's coming your way. And so you say, oh, I'm just going to trust in Jesus. No, you're not trusting in Jesus. You're being complacent. Doing nothing. That's what the disciples did. They had a sword just in case. But I'm going to sleep. I I trusted Jesus. No. No, man, you're being complacent. Faith is quite the opposite. Faith says, yes, I trust in Jesus Christ. But now I will do everything I can in accord with the will of God in order to change the situation. Faith says there's danger, there's harm coming my way, and I will be proactive. I will do what is necessary according to the will of God to do whatever needs to be done and trust in him for the outcome. I'm going to trust in him for the outcome. So that whatever happens, I can say, Lord, I did what you wanted me to do. I did not cross my arms complacently. I trusted in you as I sought you out. And now, Lord, you work out the results. That's faith. That's faith. That's what these men are not displaying. What they're displaying is a very complacent attitude. I also think that they did not move. They didn't see the the, the urgency in front of them because... They were insulated from suffering. Uh, These men may not have had the easiest life, but their suffering was just what was common to man. I mean, in life, there's suffering. There's pain. We all go through it. Some people go through extreme bouts of it. But most of us do not. And these men, up to this point, had it. They had yet to learn what it meant to suffer for their beliefs. To this point, they were not suffering for their beliefs. They will soon start suffering for their beliefs. But at this point, they're still insulated from suffering. And because they're insulated from suffering, they do not react. If you suffer, truly suffer, it will wake you up to whatever danger is coming and it's going to make you do something. If you are insulated from suffering... You will cross your arms and say, I don't need to do anything. And you'll think it's faith. You're trusting in Jesus. Why is it that the persecuted church of Christ grows? You know, nations that banned the Bible discover that there's more Bibles coming into their nation than ever before. 
Nations that burn the scriptures discover that more people are reading the Bible than ever before. Nations that say, no, Jesus here, do not meet in church, do not have church service, do not pray to Jesus. What do they discover? The church grows and grows. But I'm going to throw you in jail. Well, you throw Christians in jail and you will see the church explode. It'll get bigger and bigger and bigger. Today, the church in China is huge. And yet, it is illegal to practice Christianity in China. Right now, their churches are full. In their apartment buildings, in the woods, in the basements, all these undercover churches are meeting, even as we sit here right now. They're whispering. They're singing songs with a whisper. Because it's illegal. But their hearts are full and they're determined. Why? Because they have suffered and now they know the danger of life without Christ. And they want more of Jesus. These disciples are yet to find this out for themselves, but they will. My friends, it is so easy to lose sight of the urgency that surrounds not only the nation, but our church. There is a great urgency for a nation that requires that we pray and as we pray we discover that God directs our lives as to what to do but the threat is not only to the nation the threat is to the church and I'm speaking of hope church not just to our Christian liberties no I'm speaking to the urgency that we face here today we have become complacent Hope Church is always going to be there. Don't be so sure. It will be there if you are there. It will be there if you move into action. Otherwise, it won't be here much longer. There's an urgency that you need to realize and you need to pray about and you need to prioritize. Hope Church. It'll always be there. No. It is dependent on you to do the will of God obediently, urgently, move into action. Here at verse 47, we see the kiss of death. The kiss of death. At this point, it was very evident that to the disciples that Judas Iscariot was the betrayer. You'll recall that Judas Iscariot had dipped his bread into the bowl along with Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. Somebody had asked, well, who's going to be this betrayer? And Jesus Christ said, the one who dips his bread into the bowl with me. And Judas is shocked when he notices that it is his hand that is in a bowl with Jesus Christ. If you look there at the same chapter earlier on you'll notice that Judas Iscariot verse 23 asks with his hand in a bowl is it I rabbi? is it I teacher? he's testing Jesus Christ to see whether or not Christ is on to him does he know about my plot? is he referring to me? And Jesus Christ turns to him and says, you have said so. In other words, yes, you know it's you. And I know it's you. And with that, another gospel writer tells us that Judas Iscariot gets up and he runs out of the room to do 
what he was set out to do, to put the conspiracy against Christ into action and collect his 40 pieces of silver. And so they know who the betrayer is. They just watch them run out of the room. And so now when Judas Iscariot approaches from the Kidron Valley up to the Garden of Gethsemane in the dark, they're not surprised that it's Judas. What they are going to be surprised at is what Judas does. In the dark, with all the temple leaders coming, the temple leaders included chief priests, it included guards, it appears that some Roman guards with them, uh, was with them as well. Uh, they come with clubs and swords ready to forcefully take Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's a very quiet place to arrest Jesus Christ. This is very shrewd on their part. Maybe, maybe Judas had gone over to the, where they were having the Last Supper first, knocked on the door only to discover, hey, he's gone, they're not here. Where did they go? Oh, I know where he takes them all the time. He takes them up to the Mount of Olives. Let's go there. And up those 400 feet they go, and lo and behold, that's where they find Jesus Christ. And it's a quiet place to arrest Christ because there only, there's only 11 disciples there. There are not these masses of crowds that are going to fight to protect Jesus Christ. And there, verse 47, we see the kiss of death. It tells us there, we read there, that Judas had told them that this is the sign. The one I greet with a kiss is Jesus Christ, verse 48. The one I greet with a kiss, this is Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind that there was no photography. They couldn't look at a picture to compare, is that Jesus or is that Peter? There was no wanted posters for them to look at and say, well, that's the guy. And so in that dark garden, nothing but moonlight at best to identify Jesus, Judas kisses Jesus Christ. And notice how resolute he is. Verse 49 says, at once he approaches Christ and greets him with the words, greetings, rabbi, or Hello, teacher. What a tragic mockery, isn't it? Hello, teacher. I'm about to have you killed. Kiss of death. It's a kiss of death because Judas uses a sign of love to spew out hatred. Judas uses a gesture of fidelity in order to betray a true friend. Judas uses a kiss of devotion in order to send Jesus Christ onto the cross. The kiss of death. In verse 50, you see how Jesus Christ responds. How would you respond? Jesus Christ says, friend. I don't think he's being sarcastic. He says, friend, as this is what I am to you, Judas, friend. Do what you came to do. In other words, get with it. Do it. Get on with it. Do what you want to do, what you plan on doing. It needs to get done. Now, take a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Maybe it's on the wall. Is it there? Yeah, it's there. You can look there. What we see in what I just read to you from Matthew, and what we see here in Acts 2... It's something only God can do. The sovereignty of God is noted here and that he is able to weave the choices and the actions of man 
with God's purpose and God's eternal will. Only God can do this. He takes the choices of man, the actions of man, he takes his purpose and his will, and he meshes them together so that the choices of man falls exactly into the plan of God. Look at Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see the blame of man, you see the will of God. You see the actions of man, you see the determination of God. Only God can do that. And as you can imagine, there are lessons here on what it means to be loyal. The disciples should have been praying. Not, oh oh Jesus, don't go to the cross, but Lord, help me to be loyal. Even as Jesus Christ goes to the cross. Some lessons on loyalty. Beginning there in verse 51. Notice that it's Peter that draws a sword and swings it at the servant's head. A guy named Malchus. Uh, Again, Matthew doesn't tell us that, but uh, John chapter 18 verse 10 tells us. Now Peter's determined to prove his loyalty. You'll, You'll recall that just a few verses earlier, Peter said, I'll never, I'll never abandon you. And Jesus Christ said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Oh, not me. And now Peter's going to prove, I told you so, Jesus, it's not going to be me. And he pulls out his sword, and in defense of Jesus Christ, he swings his sword at Malchus's head, I assume, apparently Malchus ducks. Instead, Peter hits him in the ear, his ear comes off his face onto the ground, and Jesus Christ calms the whole situation by picking up that ear and putting it back onto the head of Malchus. And he's restored. I do think that if Jesus Christ had not done this, Peter would have been carted away as well. Notice something important here. Even though Jesus Christ had just picked up this man's ear and put it back on his face, the people still don't believe in him. Miracles do not create faith. The word of God is the means of creating faith. You want more faith? Don't look for miracles. Read the word of God. Verse 52 says, Put your sword back, he tells Peter. Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's a mouthful. This we can say for sure. What is Christ saying? Lesson number one on loyalty. There is no need for violence in order to defend Jesus Christ. There is no need for violence in order to defend Jesus Christ. That's a lesson there for Christian nationalists who want a revolution for the name of Jesus Christ. And so they'll pick up arms. October 6th, that guy with the horns, you know, he ventures into the capital ready to fight in the name of Jesus. Hey, listen, and I'm making no comment on October 6th in terms of the politics or in terms of whether or not it was right or wrong or revolution. I know this. That we do not need to fight, to battle, to defend Jesus Christ. Christ said here, put away your sword. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Interestingly enough, too, it's Simon Peter who picks up the sword and draws it and, and swings it. 
Among the other ten disciples was Simon the Zealot. A zealot was a Jewish nationalist. The zealot was actually a terrorist. The, the zealots would actually wage guerrilla warfare against the Roman army. And it's not the zealot, the terrorist, who pulls his sword to protect the nation of Israel, to protect Jesus. It's Simon Peter, the fisherman. And Jesus Christ says, put away your sword. Why? Lesson number one, loyalty to Christ does not require violence for Christ. It doesn't. Verse 53, Jesus Christ adds this. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? (laughs) Peter, what are you doing, Petey? All I have to do is ask my father to send some help and he will send me 12 legions of angels. Now, a full Roman legion was 6,000 foot soldiers. Jesus Christ is saying, all I have to do is ask and 72,000 angels will come to my aid. That's 6,000 for each of you disciples and 6,000 for me. Put away your sword, Pete. Because this has to come to pass. There's no need to fight because this has to happen. Christ had prayed that the will of God the Father would be accomplished. And Christ wants to fulfill the will of the Father, even though it's going to cause him torture and death. And he is determined, if you look there at 56, verse 56, he is determined to fulfill the prophetic scriptures. This has to happen. How is Christ able to control himself and not ask for 72,000 angels? He prayed. Because he prayed. Here's lesson number two on loyalty. Christ remained loyal because he was sustained by God through prayer. Christ was able to remain loyal because he was sustained by God as he prayed. The lesson is clear for us. If we don't pray, we cannot expect to do the Father's will. We cannot expect to endure the sufferings of life. We cannot expect to do right when trouble comes. Prayer is essential. When relationships or situations become difficult, you will find the strength of God through prayer. Through prayer. It begins there. It's not only there, but it begins there. And then you will find yourself to be loyal if you're a person of prayer. Loyal to whatever cause, loyal to whatever person, loyal to whatever promises were made. If you are before God in prayer. How essential prayer is. Verse 55 reads this way. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and a club to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then verse 56 ends this way. Then all the disciples left him and fled. That's kind of surprising, isn't it? 
well, humanly speaking, but knowing what we know, they were not praying, it's not surprising at all. All of the disciples, all 11, 11 of them, fled. We could say that this is the second kiss of death. These men who had promised to be loyal abandoned him. These men who had just profited from being three years with Jesus Christ abandoned him. These men who um, couldn't believe that Judas Iscariot would do something so dastardly abandoned him. These men who had seen the power, heard the wisdom of Jesus Christ for three years. These men who said, oh no, not me, I'm loyal to you to the end. They abandoned him. That's a second kiss of death. Here's lesson number three. Loyalty to Christ counts the cost and trusts in Christ for the outcome. Loyalty to Christ counts the cost and still trusts in Christ for whatever the outcome may be. You know, my friends, um, following Jesus Christ is costly. It's one of the reasons why some of you do not follow Christ very closely because it costs you too much and you don't want that price. The disciples very quickly understood this. So quickly that they ran. They said, this is a price I don't want to pay. Now, by God's grace, they come back. And God, Christ, reinstates them. But notice, first they ran away because they didn't want to count the cost. What they did not realize at that moment, what they failed to realize, is that following Christ is worth the price. It took them a while to figure this out, but they did figure it out. Have you? Following Jesus Christ is worth the cost, but it is costly. Had they been praying, had they been praying, they would have been much more able to be loyal. This cost, this willingness to pay the price would have been clear to them. Had they been praying. At times, my friends, loyalty means personal sacrifice. Lesson number one, loyalty to Christ does not require violence for Christ. Lesson number two, Christ remained loyal because he was sustained by God through prayer. And lesson number three, loyalty to Christ counts the cost and trusts in Christ for the outcome. Uh, Judas fell short of this. For a time, the disciples did as well. My question for us is, where do we stand? How loyal are we determined to be to our Savior? And how are we assuring ourselves that we will be loyal? Something for you to think about. Something for you to pray about.